Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. All right, all right. Well, again, happy Palm Sunday, everybody. If you're new with us here, my name is Peter. I'm the senior pastor. Um, and if you came in and you didn't get a chance to connect with our, uh, our welcome center out there, or maybe you've been here a couple times and you haven't yet connected, stop by there. They have a gift for you. They're really kind. Um, and if they're not, let me know. I'll fire them. Um, and then we'll just keep moving, moving forward. Uh, but we're finishing our, our series in First Peter Day. We're going to be in chapter 5. So if you want to open your Bibles to First Peter 5, whether it's physical or digital, you want to take your phone out, that's fine. Um, and uh, like every other week in this series, I just want you to be aware that, that while we are hitting every chapter in the book of First Peter, we're not hitting every verse in the book of First Peter. And so there is a breadth of information here that I really want to make sure that you guys get. So read back through it, um, everything that we have kind of covered uh, amid First Peter. Really, you'll have an opportunity to read about in, uh, in more, more depth. Uh, while you're doing that, I do want to make you aware, the week after Easter Sunday, so not next week, next week we're going we're gonna to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, I know, shocker. Um, but the week after that, we are starting in on a, a brand new series, and the series is through the book of Mark. Um, and uh, one of the things that I find helpful as we are kind of walking through uh, different series and that sort of thing is to, to try to be tied to a specific book of the Bible. I feel like it grounds me. I feel like I want to make sure that I am not introducing my own bias too much into what we are learning as a church. All of us have our biases, but it's one of the reasons that I don't preach topically most of the time. I'm probably about 65%. Let's walk through a book of the Bible and 35% topical. And so we'll hit topical things this year. We're going to have a relationship series about, about dating and marriage and all of that stuff. Uh, we're going to have a series in August called Love Where You Live, where we are going to be focusing on our community and focusing on those people. And so we'll hit some topical stuff, but largely we are going to spend 24 weeks in the book of Mark. So settle in um, because I am excited to go, go through it. And one of the cool things about the book of Mark is actually that, that uh, most people believe, most scholars believe that the book of Mark was actually um, uh, dictated to Mark by the Apostle Peter. And so as you read through it, you can get echoes of some of this stuff that we're hearing now from First Peter um, because the Apostle Peter, largely most people believe, uh, was dictated um, to the evangelist Mark. So all of that to be said, let's push on. So this morning we're continuing to think about this idea of identity, right? First Peter, we've largely talked about this over and over and over again. Peter is reminding people about what their identity is. They say, my identity, your, he says, your identity is found in Christ. And so if your identity is found in Christ, you need to function like your identity is found in Christ. This has been talked about over and over and over again. And so today he's going to largely do the same thing, but he's going to talk a little bit about this idea of roles and specifically roles within the church. So as we get there, let's, let's think for a second about any organization that you're a part of. Maybe it's a work organization and, and think about your role in these organizations. So maybe it's at work, Maybe it's, uh, you know, at, at, at an after-school program or a club that you help run. Maybe it's at church. Maybe it's your pickleball team. I don't know what organization that you're a part of, okay? But think about your role in that, in that organization. Each of you, everybody have, has positions that they have to play in that organization. Right now, I am an under or a 10 and under coach for my son's soccer team, my middle son's soccer team, Owen. 
It's, it's phenomenal. Um, and uh, 10, U10s is really fun because they are, they are still um, respectful enough and they want to learn and they're smart enough to be able to listen to the things that you tell them to do. But really, at, at like the root of everything, all they want to do is still just get right next to the ball and kick it as hard as they can at the other, at the other team's goal, right? So, so U10s is a whole lot of fun. Uh, but my role in that organization is to coach them up to be able to get better. And the league that we're in, it's not a super competitive league. And so really the goal is we want you to learn stuff so you can be better at soccer. That's, that's the goal of, of me coaching. Hey, let's learn some stuff. And by nature of my own competitiveness, I'm like, let's learn some stuff, but let's also win all the games too, right? Like, like that is the goal for me personally, but not necessarily for my team. And so that's my role. And, and each of them on my team has roles depending on the position that they play. And so there's some kids who, and they are strikers, their role is to try to score goals. And there's other people that I put a defender or goalie and their role is to not let the other team score. It took my team two weeks to figure out that they were supposed to actually shoot the ball. It's terrible. Week one, I was just like, do you guys need a reminder about what it is that big rectangle thing at the end of the field is for? I think we had one shot on goal. I was like, guys, your respect, you are failing in your role in this organization. You need to take that ball and you need to shoot it at that goal. And if you're not, you're failing me as a coach. That was my pep. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. But that's my, like my job is to coach them up. That's my role in the organization. And so all of us have different roles in our organization, whether that's church, whether it's your, your business, or maybe your role is to, to sell as much as you can. Maybe it's to organize people to the best of your ability. Maybe it's to manage things and processes to the best of your ability to make sure that the business is profitable. I don't know what your role is out there. I do know, uh, I do know though, that Peter talks about in chapter five, he's going to take some time to look at roles within the organization of the church, roles and responsibilities, and talk about how it is that we can both win and lose amid our organization. So he picks up here in verse one. This is what it says, to the elders among you. So he's writing to the elders currently. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, not eager, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears... You will receive the crown of glory that will, for, that will never fade away. So here we have our guy, Peter. Now, if you know much about Peter, before he was an apostle, he was a disciple. Okay? He was a disciple of Christ. And anytime you see a list of disciples written in the New Testament, you'll find his name first. Okay? Peter was kind of the head of the disciples. There was Jesus, and then there was Peter, and it was like Peter, James, and John, and then everybody else after him. But Peter consistently came first in that list, which meant this was the guy who was in charge, right? Peter is the one, even as we get closer here to Easter, on, uh, and, and they, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
right? And then the Roman guard shows up and Peter's the one who pulls out his, his knife and runs up and tries to declare war on the entire Roman nation by cutting off one guard's ear. Like this is the guy he wanted to go. He was the leader. He was ready to push. Peter is also the guy, the more you read about the things that he says and more specifically the things that he does in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this guy's title of the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth fits perfectly. This guy consistently shoves his foot so far in his mouth because he's like, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to act. I'm ready to do all of these things. And then he consistently just makes a fool of himself over and over and over again, as you see in the Garden of Gethsemane. But beyond that, Peter was trained as a leader for three years by Jesus, right? Jesus actually told Peter that he was going to be praying for him because Satan would attack him, that Peter was going to fail as he does this week during Passion Week, but then ultimately he is going to be restored one day when Jesus rises again. There's that story of Jesus and Peter having breakfast on the beach, and Jesus asks him three different times, do you love me? And he says, yes, well, then feed my sheep over and over and over again. So Peter is now, in this case, this is many years later, he's kind of an old shepherd. He's an old leader of the church. And Peter's job here, as he's writing to these persecuted Christians in Asia Minor, is to be able to make sure that these guys, these next group of leaders, of elders in the church, is ready to lead. Because as he is looking forward There is a crisis coming, and it has everything to do with their faith and other people's inability to get on board with Christianity. So he says, hey, leaders, you got to get ready to go. And so I'm going to appeal to you as a leader. And at this point, Peter could have easily dropped that apostle card, right? He could have easily said, boom, apostle, everything that I say you must do because I am an apostle. He could have pulled rank. But he doesn't pull rank here. Actually, what he says in verse 1 is he is appealing to all of these other elders as a fellow elder, as somebody else who's willing to walk through the fire with these people. Now, I I, want to say just for a second that, that these verses, there are very few verses in Scripture that intimidate me as much as these verses do. And there's a couple, Paul talks about a couple, there's there's a passage in Hebrews that talks about a couple that we're going to get through, get to in just a second, but but these other guys who Paul was writing to are in charge of believers in Asia Minor. And these verses talk about the burden of being a shepherd to a congregation, the burden of being a shepherd to believers. Let's look in the Hebrews verse really quick, it's Hebrews 13, 17. The author is writing to believers here telling them to to listen and to submit to their elders. And that part's not particularly scary. As a matter of fact, I kind of like that part. But there is a part in this verse that is really, really burdensome to a leader. See if you can pick it out. It says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. Amen. But because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account, do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Did you catch it? That little section right in the middle, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. There's a burden there. 
It's that part that says the flock should be in submission to the shepherd because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. That means pastors and elders will have to give an account to God as to how they oversee their congregations. I will have to give an account for the way that I have overseen our congregation. That is a burden that I have to bear. Acts 20, 28 says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This is Paul talking to elders. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So Paul echoes the same sentiments here. He tells the leaders and he tells the elders, keep an eye out for yourself. Make sure that you're checking yourself before you're wrecking yourself. It's in the Bible somewhere, I think. But keep an eye out for yourself and your entire flock. Why? Why do we have to do this? We have to do this because Jesus purchased them, purchased these people with his blood. That's why. That's a burden. That's heavy. And any pastor or elder or leader who doesn't feel that burden, I'd probably say you should run away from them pretty quick because pride and arrogance has probably gotten the best of them. And so this is terrifying for us. And Paul pulls no, no punches here. He's just saying, hey, Jesus bought the church with his blood. And because of the fact that he bought the church with his blood, I'm going to hold you to account based on the way that you manage these people. So again, if you look at the way that Peter writes to the church, the way he pleads with them. He's not throwing down that big beefy card of apostleship like I talked about saying, listen to me because of my status. He is simply appealing to them as a guy who is very similar to the rest of them, which allows me then to take a deep breath. <sighs> because Peter, Peter uses these words to encourage the elders here. And I think oftentimes that, that my parents really did name me correctly because as we look at Peter in the Bible, man, Peter was just a dumb fisherman who really wanted people to know who Jesus was. And I'm a guy who's not even smart enough to fish and I have the same goal, right? Like, like ultimately that is my goal. And so looking at Peter as he is appealing to the common man, as he's appealing to everybody who's on the same playing field as everybody else, he's saying, look, I am an elder as well. And so I want to make sure that all of us get this correct. All of us get this right. And so Peter, like I said, he uses these words to encourage the elders. He's not doing it as a guy who's not willing to, to walk through everything with them. He is doing this as a guy who is willing to walk through the burden and walk through the struggle that they are also going to walk through. And as we see later on, according to church tradition, Peter actually practiced what he preached. Peter was willing to do the hard things. Peter was willing to walk a difficult life and walk through that struggle of persecution, of burden as the leader. Because as we see, when Peter finally gets killed for his faith, they want to crucify him. But according to church tradition, he says, I'm not worthy to be killed in the same manner as my Savior. Flip me upside down. So they crucify Peter on a cross by hanging him upside down. He was willing to do the hard things, and he's appealing to these elders in the same way. He's saying, you guys who are just like me, get ready. Make sure you take care of the flock because difficulty is coming, and if they are going to be ready, you have to be ready. He exemplifies what he says in verse 3. When he tells people, hey, don't lord it over the idea of being an elder over anyone, but lead by example to the flock. 
So I need to call attention to a second for just uh, to this for just a second because I've used three different words interchangeably, and I think for the most part all of you understood the context. But I've used shepherd, I've used elder, and I've used pastor all interchangeably. That is true of the entire New Testament. Those three words, unless they're describing the profession of an actual shepherd, those three words are all interchangeable: elder, pastor, and shepherd. The idea of elders actually comes from the the Old Testament, Jewish tradition. And so when you looked at all of the different tribes of Jerusalem as they got broken up, there were elders appointed to each tribe. And as those elders had to make a decision, they would come together, they would make a decision, and each of them had a different function amongst those different tribes. And, And so they would come together, and then that carried over into the New Testament and now even carries over into church polity is what it's called, church governance today. And so many churches still have elders. We don't have elders by name. We have elders by function. And we talked about this a lot last year as we preached through the book of Titus. We talked about the roles of elders and kind of how our church governance takes place. Because a lot of people think, oh, we're governed by the church board. Which is true. We do have an executive board. But our executive board are not our elders. Our executive board largely is in place to make sure that the business side of the church, the money side of the church, making sure we can keep lights on, making sure that people are cared for, all of those different things, the executive board has a very specific role there, okay? But the executive board are not the spiritual overseers of our church. The elders of our church functionally are our pastors. So myself, Pastor Jeff, and even Pastor Kyle. And so if you're wondering what it means to be an elder, how it is that you become an elder, you can look at 1 Timothy 3.17 or Titus 1, 6 through 9. Those are the qualifications of eldership in the church. We don't have time to go through them today, but that's part of it. Okay? The next part of it is that uh, a congregation has to, ha- has to essentially like be, rec- like a congregation has to recognize them as elders. You can't just stand up today and please don't because I'll get lost on my notes. You can't just stand up today and say, you know what, I'm an elder now, everybody. By the way, in case you're curious, all of you need to submit to my authority immediately um, and we need to have more donuts. So, like that, that's not, that's not the, the role of an elder and that's not how you become an elder. You need to be recognized recognized by the congregation. So by my function, when I got here almost four years ago now, there had to be an entire congregational vote to make sure that that the congregation was going to recognize me as pastor, as elder, and be willing then to submit to my authority. And so good news is they, they did, you did, for those of you who were here and voted, and now I am an elder of the church. Jeff is an elder of our church. Kyle's an elder of our church. So the church, the congregation has to recognize the elder. And the last piece of eldership, and this is why our executive board largely are not elders, is because elders of the church, um, they, they lead the congregation by teaching the word. That's a major part of being an elder. And so for the most part, you won't see members of our executive board up here teaching the word. I think the only person who has done that who is also sitting on our executive board, at least since I've been here, is Dave Fox. And so Dave is a former pastor. He's been up here. He preaches the word and that sort of thing. But even then, functionally, our pastoral staff would be elders. And so the the elders, man, we have the responsibility then of shepherds. And it sounds cool, right? It's like, man, we're just going to do whatever you want to do. I said I was going to fire greeters earlier. I was like, hey, no skin off my back. I'm an elder. I have to submit to his authority. And it sounds great. But then you look at these verses and the burden that comes with it. 
that I am going to be held to account based on the way that I handle myself in this role, that Jeff is going to be held to account, Kyle is going to be held to account. And so all of us are shepherds, and shepherds have to do some pretty terrible things with their sheep. Think about what shepherds have to do. They have to watch over their flock. They instruct all of the sheep, right? That's good news. So that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing today. They strengthen the weak ones, okay? All right, that sounds fun sometimes, but then you have to rebuke the obstinate ones, which is always a fun part of my job, and then bear with the difficult ones. That's the role of a shepherd. That's the role of an elder, and all of these things elders will give an account for when we leave this earth. So then it becomes the responsibility of the congregation, the sheep, but not like an insulting way that we use sheep today, but the sheep, the congregation, to make sure that the elder is fit for office, to make sure that the congregation is following pastors and elders who are doing the things that I lined out. And it's more important than a popularity contest. And I hope that maybe you're here for the first time trying out our church or whatever. I hope that we, we, we would be judged really based on the content of our character, the friendliness. Are we preaching from the word? Are we doing all those things that checks the boxes? And not do we have the fanciest light show and the best music? Because we don't. Sorry, Kyle, love you. Sorry, worship team, love you. But we don't. As you are walking through these processes of finding a church that, that you are willing to submit to, part of that equation has to be, am I willing to submit to these pastors, these elders? And then the other side of it is, is us being responsible for that burden of taking care of that congregation. So do you believe that myself and Pastor Jeff and Pastor Kyle are holding to these standards of elder? And if there's gray areas that you think we need to know about in our own lives, please come and talk to us. Please come and have that conversation because we are going to be held account. And if there's a gray area in my life, I would like to know about it. So I don't find out about it from God for the first time. I'm like, what? My whole congregation knew about this and I had to hear it from Jesus first? So that's your responsibility. But beyond being held to account, Peter tells this church that they are, there, there are fiery trials coming and the elder better be able to walk through the flames with their flock. And so here comes the next role of the church that Peter is going to be talking about starting in verse 5. It says, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Okay, let's take a pause real quick. We see this idea of younger versus elder. Okay, most instances in this context is going to not be talking about age. Okay, just remember, just because you're old doesn't mean that you've gained the respect of, ever, of other people. And just because you are young does also not mean that you have to submit to everyone. It's going to talk about submission. It's going to talk about humility. It's going to talk about all those things. But this is talking about wisdom. This is talking about maturity. This is talking about all the things that find out in 1 Timothy and Titus. So it goes on in 5b. All of you. So now it's not elders, everybody, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Okay, so Peter now here in verses 5b and following, he's talking about infighting in the church. He's saying, hey, body of Christ, you want to make sure that you're doing things correctly? You want to make sure that, that you guys are living harmoniously? You want to make sure that you are ready to go when all of these fiery trials come? Start with humility. 
which seems like a weird place to start. Hey, trials are coming. Be humble. Hmm. That seems strange, but he recognizes the importance of the congregation. He recognizes the importance of the sheep. He recognizes the importance of the body of Christ getting along with one another. That there isn't supposed to be power struggles. There isn't supposed to be, you know, people who, who are in it only for themselves. There isn't supposed to be, I claim elder this time. There isn't supposed to be any of that infighting or pride or arrogance or anything like that. It is we are going to submit to one another. We are going to be humble to one another. So when these trials come, we can gird each other up and not tear each other apart. That's what he's talking about here. And yeah, of course, he talks about those submitting to the elders in the church and all of that stuff. But we need to recognize that we live on this spectrum from humble to proud. All of us live on that spectrum of humble to proud. And it probably moves every day a little bit, depending on how good you're feeling that day, how well your clothes fit, how low that scale says, whatever, right? Like we live on that spectrum of, of humble to proud. And some of us are super humble, and the way that we know you're super humble is you never talk about yourself and you never talk about how humble you are. And others of us are super prideful. And the way that we know who those people are is they tell you how humble they are. But at its root, all of us at some point struggle with this prideful ambition at times. And then we think to ourselves that it's, you know, maybe it's really difficult to not be proud of who I am or not be proud of what I've accomplished. Because there's things I'm proud of in my life, just like there's probably things that you're proud of in your life. I'm proud of my family. I'm proud of my home. I'm proud of my wife. I'm proud of my kids. I'm proud of, uh, of what I've been able to accomplish, I feel like, for the kingdom of God. I'm proud of my job. I'm proud of the direction that we're going as a church. Like, I'm proud of all of those things. And so when it's talking about this sin of pride, it's not saying, hey, don't be happy because what you've been able to accomplish it's saying don't be arrogant about it and elevate yourself above other people simply because of the fact of you've accomplished maybe more than other people have, right? If I'm, if I'm so proud of my work that I feel the need to put other people down for what they do or I feel like my status is elevated because I am better than them at something, then we have a pride issue. That's when pride tends to come in. If I'm better at something than someone, and, and I've put in the work and I've done everything else, but I still treat everybody's, everybody like equals. I don't have a pride issue then. That's humility. That's recognizing that all of us are on the same playing field regardless of what it is that we've accomplished, regardless of stature, regardless of title, regardless of, of, of anything else. It's the old axiom. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, right? It's the same exact thing because at the end of the day if we don't have God in our lives then we have no reason to be humble if you're here and you have not yet said yes to Jesus you don't have a relationship with Jesus you can be as arrogant and as prideful as you want as a matter of fact our society will give you a big old thumbs up on social media for being as prideful and successful as you want you can project yourself in any way. As a matter of fact, man, you have to be your own best marketer nowadays in order to, get, to seemingly get ahead. Show that highlight reel of your life on Instagram. That's great. But when it comes to being a Christian, when it comes to saying, yes, I have a relationship with God, we also need to come to terms with the fact that all of us are on the same playing field because at the end of all of our services, we start it the same way. We start with the letter A, which is admit that I am a sinner in need of a savior. You know where that puts us? All of us, bottom shelf. 
Every single one of us, that's where we're at every single day, that we admit that we're a sinner in need of a savior. And so it doesn't matter what you've accomplished in your life because at the end of the day, you're still a sinner in need of a savior. It doesn't matter how great your family is because at the end of the day, you're still a sinner in need of a savior. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how philanthropic you are. At the end of the day, you're still a sinner in need of a savior. That's humility. That recognition that all of us are on the same playing field. And, and, and this is something that Jesus talks about all the time. Actually, one of my favorite passages, one of my favorite passages about Jesus, it, it's found in Philippians 2. It's verses 5 through 11. It'll probably be familiar to some of you. But it says, in your relationships with one another, this is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. He's, it's the same thing. So, hey, in your relationships with each other, body of Christ, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. Okay, well, what was his mindset? Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that all the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And talk about humility. The Savior of the world, the Son of God, everything in all of creation created through him. As it tells us in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Jesus, everything in all of creation, Savior of all of humanity. He thought to himself, you know what? Equality with God is not something to be grasped. And I'm not going to take advantage of it. I am willingly... I am willingly going to make myself lower. I am going to humble myself, make myself lower than God and walk out the plans that he has. This is God. He could have literally on Friday, on Good Friday, he could have taken himself off the cross and said, you know what, I'm out. I really don't want to do this anymore. It's kind of painful and the burden of every sin of all of humanity for the entirety of time is a little bit too much for me to bear. So I'm out. He could have done that if he wanted to. He even prays about it in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? The sweat and the blood and all that stuff that's like pouring out. And he said, God, if, it, if, if there's any other way to do it, please take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. He willingly submits himself to God. He humbles himself to God's authority, because at the end of the day, he could have done it his own way, but he recognized that God's way was the best way in the same way that every single one of us should think the same thing. We talk about humility, thinking that I could do this my own way. I can white knuckle this thing to death. I can accomplish it if I just try a little bit harder, if I wake up a little bit earlier, if I forsake my family a little bit more, if I can rake in a little bit more cash, I can do this. But instead, we need to be saying, you know what, I could do that. But I think God's way is going to be a whole lot better. So humility has been modeled for us. You know, the word humble shows up over 900 times in Scripture. 900 times. So if pride is an issue for you, my guess is you're not reading your Bible 
because it would have told you 900 times to stop it. 900 times. And I think it's probably pretty important for us to get this piece correct. Very important. But he continues. He says in verse 8, he says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There's a word picture for you. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And so after these verses, if you have your Bible open, you'll see that there's a salutation at the end. We're not going to get into the salutation. There's stuff that you can learn from that. But this is largely how Peter wraps up his letter. Verses 8 through 11, actually these, these 11 verses as a whole. He talks about the idea that all of us have a role to play. Maybe your role is pastor, elder, leader in the church. And if that's the case, you probably got some work to do. I continually have work to do. Maybe your role is, is congregant, sheep, part of, the, part of the flock. In which case, we've got some work to do. We've got to work on that humility, making sure that we don't have that infighting or, or anything like that. And then he, he reminds us here that all of us, our role as all of us are simply Christians, children of God, regardless of where you stand, regardless of where you fall. And he says, hey, children of God, be of sober mind. Be ready. Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. He tells him, be alert. He says, be ready because the devil, is, it is coming. And, and he's alluding back to this idea that things are going to get worse. Persecution is going to get worse. This is going to get more difficult. And so as it gets more difficult, be on the lookout for Satan. Be on the lookout for the enemy. Because he's prowling around and he's going to want to get the best of you. Oftentimes, the way that he does this, and I think this is why in, uh, in verse 9, Peter reminds people that the family of believers throughout the world is going through this. The devil likes to isolate people. And maybe you've experienced this. I've experienced this as I deal sometimes with like anxiety and that sort of thing. That at the end of days sometimes where I'm like done, I'm tapped, like I feel like the whole world is closing in on me. Right, I talked about this at the beginning of last year where COVID, I felt like everything was just like closing in on the church and we couldn't get a grasp on how it was that we were supposed to move forward. But like every day I had to make 15 new decisions for the direction of the organization and I was just shot and, and my anxiety was through the roof. And at the end of some days, I would come home and I would make a beeline for my bedroom, shut the door, turn off the lights, lay on my bed and just be quiet and still in the midst of darkness. And it's not just because I'm an introvert by nature. It's because the enemy wanted me to be isolated. It's because I thought that my way out of all of this was just to silently deal with my own emotion. To silently walk through this burden that I was carrying. And nothing got better. 
Nothing got better from me going into my room and closing the door and turning off the light and isolating myself from the rest of the family of believers who was out there going through the same exact thing. And I think it's true of all of us. I think there are times when we are struggling with sin. There are times where maybe you feel like your anxiety or times where maybe you feel like the world is just closing in on you or you feel like everything's falling apart at work or everything's falling apart at home that you think to yourself, if I can just white knuckle this thing, if I can get a handle on it, I don't need anybody else's help. I can handle it on my own. God, just kind of stay out of my way. I will get through this. I've done it before. The enemy loves to deal in isolation. It's the body of Christ, the power of the body of Christ, the unity of Christ, recognizing that there is a, an entire world of people who are walking through the same exact things that you have walked through or you are currently walking through. It's that whole idea of hardship and difficulty, right? I talk about my dad uh, passing away from cancer a lot from the stage. I get it. It was a very formative moment in my life, so don't judge me for that. How dare you? But... One of the reasons that I get to talk about that, one of the reasons that I get to share in that struggle is because it gives me a voice into everybody else's life who has also dealt with a loved one passing away or a loved one dealing with cancer. There's an entire community of believers out there who need to hear your story, who need to hear what you have walked through. There's an entire community of believers out there who have dealt with anxiety, who have dealt with depression, who have dealt with hardship that need to know that they are not alone. There's an entire community of believers out there who have dealt with pornography, who have dealt with masturbation, who have dealt with lust, who need the community of believers around them to help push them forward. Satan loves to deal in isolation. And so Peter says, just remember, things are difficult right now. Things are hard right now. But there's an entire community of believers around the world who are going through the same thing. Be girded up. And then in verse 10, he says, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. After you've suffered for a little while, after you've been on this earth for a little while, after you've struggled with your sin for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. He calls you back to 1 Peter chapter 3 where he says you are a royal priesthood. You are God's chosen people. Things are hard right now, but that being said, God is going to restore you. It may take a little bit of time and it may be difficult right now, but God is in the process of restoring you. He is in the business of making all things new. So hold on, don't be in isolation. And lastly, he says in verse 11, to him be the power forever and ever, amen. He doesn't say to you be the power forever and ever and amen. He doesn't say you need to white knuckle a little bit harder. He says to to God be the power forever and ever. Amen. So as you think about your role, as you think about elder or sheep, part of the flock, some of you thought I cussed. It sounded like I cussed. I'll listen to that back on the, on the radio, whatever. So maybe you're a shepherd. Maybe you're part of the flock. Maybe you are simply Christian today. Wherever it is that you are, the power doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from your ability. It doesn't come from how great you are. It comes from resting in the knowledge that power comes from God and our humility in the midst of that. That doesn't mean you're without responsibility. That does mean, though, that, that at the end of the day, this is all God's. And the good news is, 
is that God has called you according to his plans and his purpose. And so we get to rely on him forever. So even as I was putting this, this message together, it all just felt like so disjointed to me because there's three sections that it doesn't really seem like there's a thread through. And, and the longer I worked through it, the more I recognized that this is Peter's just, I mean, 11 verses. If you do nothing else, do this and lands with the idea. But at the end of the day, all power to God. That's it. That things are going to be difficult for a little while, but all power to God. So I don't know what your role is, and I don't know what the, the Holy Spirit needs to convict you of this morning. I'll leave that to him. But what is the role in your life that you need to bolster? Are you an elder or a leader, maybe someone who would like to be an elder one day? Do you need to take a look at those First Timothy and Titus passages? Make sure that you're measuring up or at least looking forward. Maybe your role is being a member of the congregation congrats you're here so at least for this week you're a member of our congregation and in that your role is to be humble and practice humility to the rest of the church recognizing that you are on equal ground with everybody else because you're a sinner in need of a savior or maybe your role this morning needs to be recognizing that while your current life is difficult God has something bigger and God has something better for you regardless of how bad it gets one day he is going to make all things new. Why? Because that's what he's in the business of doing. And that's what we get to celebrate this week, making all things new. As he sent his son to die on a cross for all of our sins so that we could spend eternity with him forever. That's what we celebrate this week. And we celebrate that as each and every one of us has a role that we need to play. Why don't you pray with me, church? Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for your spirit. I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for even the encouragement that Peter gives to this church in Asia Minor and the truth that we can pull from it. And God, I recognize all of us have a role to play this morning. All of us have a role to play in our lives and that role should be shaped by our identity that is found in you, that you have made us new. And so, God, thank you for that. And I pray that our actions out of, would, would just seep out of our identity, that the things that we do, the things that we say would be honoring to you because we identify with you, that you have identified with us. So, Father, thank you for that. And, Lord, I pray this morning, maybe for those who have not yet placed their faith in you, they have not yet placed their identity with, with you who makes all things new. If that's, if that's you this morning, or maybe you've fallen away and you need to, you need to re-up because you recognize that, that you haven't been doing a very good job as a member of the congregation. I don't know where you're at, but if you fall into either of those camps, simply pray along with me. Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. We all are that we need to come to this conclusion every day, God, which is why we can be humble. But B, I believe you sent your son to die on a cross for me this Friday. But God, thankfully, he didn't stay there. He rose again 
on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And so because of that, I choose to follow you every single day. God, thank you for your son. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.